0: It's just a rare sport where you can go and you know, you and I are sitting down at the game together and you're wearing a different jersey than me and if good rugby happens we cheer it on and we may buy each other a beer. Like it's just it's a it's a really cool festival experience and anybody who's experienced that in rugby understands, wow, this is actually sport the way it should be.
1: From front office sports it's office hours a show where we take you inside the minds of some of the most influential names in the sports industry to break down where things have been and where they are going before we get to today's episode here's a quick word from our sponsor bitrix new crypto traders have a wide range of options when it comes to selecting tokens and the same is true for the trading platform they choose to operate on there are many factors to consider when deciding on a platform like token selection trading features and trade execution speed But perhaps the most important is security. Bittrex stands above the competition as the most reliable trading platform and sets the standard for security and convenience in the crypto space. Its innovative solutions offer best-in-class asset protection without making compromises on trade, execution, or flexibility. As part of an industry that hinges on security and accountability, Bittrex is committed to protecting its customers in every part of their crypto trading journey. Bittrex respects its users' trust in the platform and rewards that trust with an ever-expanding list of features and functionalities designed to improve their experience. To learn more about our technology and why Bitrix is the superior choice for keeping your crypto secure, visit www.bitrix.com. Again, visit www.bitrix.com. That's B I T T R E X.com. I'm Adam White, and on today's episode, we're joined by Alex Maggleby, the co founder and CEO of the New England Free Jacks, one of the 13 major league rugby teams. A Dartmouth grad, Maggleby forewent an investment banking internship out of college to play on the U.S. national team. 18 years and a few entrepreneurial endeavors later, Maggleby finds himself leading the growth and development of the Free Jacks, something he never would have expected. It's been a, been a little bit of a crazy time uh, in and around the sports and entertainment world. And, you know, for you, especially um, as not only a former athlete, but as a former national team athlete, how is that kind of shaken out in, in what you see uh, going on now, right, with the Olympics postponed? What, take us back to when you were in college and you were competing for the, for the U.S. national team. What would that have been like if, if you would have had the Olympics or in, in other international competitions just come to a, a screeching halt?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So when I was playing, we had a, there was a robust you know, international test window for 15s 15, 15 rugby, the traditional game as well as the Sevens World Series, and I was able to play, play on both of those for the United States, which was fantastic. Fantastic, But, you know, rugby hadn't been in the Olympics since 1924, so when we took the two teams to Rio in 2016, the Sevens team, that was the first time I was back in the Olympics. And I can't imagine being in the situation that our athletes, our, our U.S. athletes, have had to be in, you know, at any sport over the last year plus, uh, chasing the end of the quad and, and peaking, and then having to find a way to, to press a bit of a reset. You know, a lot of a lot of these athletes have worked really hard for for that moment in time, with a plan to do something else after, whether that's a new job, a school, um, you know, f- building a family, a lot of other things that go into that. So having to to make those decisions to try to try to push off a peak for another year has to be enormously difficult. But you know, depending on the mindset, that's another year to get better, and there's a, a whole host of other things that give give some athletes another opportunity. The hard part now, I think, for a lot of the athletes is it's still not clear what their runway is going to be uh, into, into the Olympics. And so that's got to be really hard is just the unknown and having to then put some controls and uh, systems in place in order to manage that without actually knowing when your competition cycle or schedule is going to be over the next, you know, 12 months. That's a challenge for
1: sure. Have any players reached out to, to you or, or what's been the kind of prevailing thought uh, yeah, from any yeah. of them?
0: able to catch up with a lot of our former players you know I used to be the general manager for USA rugby before that uh, national team head coach and uh, so still really a lot of those a lot of those athletes I uh, was fortunate to be a part of their progress and progression uh, into the national scene and so I've been able to catch up with many of them actually just in regards to you know how they they personally are managing it and thankfully you know especially with our our, our Olympic uh, sevens teams, USA rugby, there's some really good programs around them uh, off the field. You know, there's, there's this, what's, what's called the, the care program and that's giving them opportunities off the field to do internships and other things that can help them build their career. And now for, for, for post Olympics. And a lot of them are in the middle of those internships or just finishing those up. And um, so they've had something else to kind of occupy their mind and they've got great coaching staffs uh, in Chula Vista in, in California that are really taking care of them. So, they're putting some structure in place to make sure that they have that, that that runway, despite what may happen from a um, competition standpoint. It is, it is no doubt though, uh, mentally, that's pretty challenging because you still got to do the work, but it's not quite clear what the work is going towards. And that's always, that's sometimes hard when you're, when you're in the tunnel and it's black.
1: Yeah, I can't imagine. And, uh, kudos to to them for even, you know, sticking it out in, in most cases, but you know, talking back. I think you mentioned getting rid of, getting ready for the next chapter. Went to Dartmouth. You got a, You know, you got your degree in engineering sciences. You played for the national team. Rugby, in a sense, is very different than many other professional sports or in many other sports that have a true kind of professional trajectory. Rugby does in some sense, but it's not as lucrative right, as, as, uh, as most other you know, major sports. Um, and so for you, as, as someone who went to Dartmouth, got your degree, ended up playing on the national team, how did you start to plan for what was next? What was that discussion like? Did you know you were going to be a, a rugby person for life, whether that's, you know, coaching or working with the national team? Uh, and I know you also have some background in entrepreneurship as well, which we'll get into. But what was that kind of when you were ready to graduate and, you know, in 2000 and you were looking at, you know, the opportunity to play and then whatever else was next after that? How did you kind of scope that out?
0: Yeah. So kind of taking a step back, we're looking at kind of rugby globally and what's happened and. changed over the course of certainly my career you know rugby is a sport of the ancients in a lot of ways you know 1823 England and spread throughout the world played virtually on every continent and uh, you know the, the rugby world cup is the second largest sporting event from attendance numbers and everything else so it's always had this this great global following the rugby itself really only went professional after the 95 world cup you know that was the uh, the, the Nelson Mandela World Cup, when you know Invictus, you you may be familiar with, and just the stories around how um, South Africa used rugby as as one of the tools to kind of help bring the the country together post-apartheid. And at, at that time, the commercialization started to happen. Players were amateur. You know, they were all working their day jobs, and they were attorneys and accountants and contractors and carpenters and all sorts of other things. And after that moment in time, I was like, okay, this, this, let's, let's turn this game professional because the players need to train that way anyway. And so let's, and the dollars are coming through the door and that really needs to be going back to the content creators who are the players. So let's, let's create professional rugby. So world rugby move to allow for amateurism to, to disappear at the top levels well from the international game as well as club competitions. And so you started to see, you know, a lot of, um, Clubs and, 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 and tournaments and everything else go professional, but that's that's new. That's that's it's not it doesn't have a long history of really Professionalization in the sport itself. And so it took you know a decade plus just to go through those early learnings that, that Typically happen with professional sports. It wasn't until the mid 2000s that that really changed But there you know, so I was graduating high school I'd played high school rugby in the United States, you know, we had a, we had a really good robust uh, high school team I, was, I grew up in Salt Lake City you know, we all played football together and then in the spring we all played rugby together and you know really good athletes we won a bunch of national championships we toured the world were successfully you know won games internationally as, as, as high school athletes it was a really cool introduction to the sport I played in college again lucky to be in a, in a situation where the, the college program was really robust long long history of, of college on that camp uh, rugby on that campus with quality coaching and all those kind of things so and again, with rugby, then you have, you know, 40, 50 best friends from all over the world, highly diverse socioeconomically, just this great welcoming sport. So I was able to experience that. And then as I'm graduating college or getting ready to graduate college and debating whether I'm going to take an engineering job, you know, follow up with my investment banking internship or, you know, chase, chase rugby, I, I was fortunate to get selected for the U.S. National sevens team at the time. It was the first year of the World 7th Series that had started to become professionalized. So I was able to, before I even graduated, experience that, and then it helped make that decision easy for me. So, okay, for the next two years of my life, I'm going to commit to this because, one, it's, it's an experience that you never get, right? You, and I get to travel the world. I get to meet interesting people in, in all sorts of different industries. Um, and it's a global game, and I really want to be a part of that and experience the world that way. So that's that was my motivation, and that really helped with my decision-making matrix to, to do that as opposed to chasing more of a, a traditional offering uh, Post college. And then because of that, I was, I kind of had two years went well and I, and I was doing fairly well. I started coaching on the side, created an analytics company as, as part of that, and I we was still able to play and get paid to play a little bit. And um, so just kept evolving and kept changing because at a macro level, the sport kept changing. It, bec- it started becoming more professional, not only at the top level, but you started seeing scholastic the scholastic model of the United States change, professionalization on campuses people were starting to take it more seriously as a student athlete endeavor, as opposed to just kind of a a recreational intramural endeavor and nothing wrong with that. Those those things are needed on college campuses, but it's just different. It was was more trending towards a varsity crew team as opposed to uh, an intramural uh, fraternity team. And so we we started to see that on a lot of college campuses. So a lot of things have changed, you know, of course, the last two decades. And I've just, um, uh, my career has gone along with probably a lot of those macro changes.
1: Yeah, no, it all it all makes sense, and it's probably a little bit different than the uh, investment banking internship. That's for sure. I think when you look back, there's people who took the investment banking internship, and there's you who went and played uh, rugby. Probably a couple different experiences along the way. So I
0: think yours for sure.
1: That's awesome. So look, you you're playing you're playing rugby. You're coaching at Dartmouth. Uh, you're coaching for USA Rugby, you're playing for USA Rugby, kind of all at once, and then you decide to launch an analytics company. What, what was the decision behind that? I know you ran it for, for what it looks like about 10 years, but, you know, what was the kind of decision behind that on top of everything you were already doing, um, and kind of how did that, uh, that, that shake out, and, and that, what did that next 10 years kind of look like, as you not only did that, but were also coaching, and, and, and the early part of it, even playing in some respect?
0: Yeah, so six months of the year at the time, I was being paid to go play rugby kind of throughout the world, representing our country. Uh, fantastic experience. And the other six months of the year, I was I was coaching. I was actually coaching at my alma mater. Our uh, head coach who had been there for a long, long time, retired pretty quickly after, you know, my class had, had finished up, and they were looking for an interim coach. I was able to do it because it was opposite seasons. You know, I, I started to really like it. We, we were having some success, um, and it was actually helping me be, be a better player, kind of digging into the game from a – from a different perspective from a more of a macro perspective and that really helped me actually as a player and then you know, so it was a really nice um circle but i was trying to i was trying to get it be become a better head coach and we we didn't have a big budget you know i wasn't going to be able to hire a lot of assistant coaches and a uh, video analyst and a lot of other things that probably i had experienced in, in football and um I wanted to figure out a way to do better quality control of our program. Both, you know, how I was, what was my pedagogy like? I was filming it, but just kind of the breakdown of that. What did that look like? What did our trainings look like? How do we improve those? And then certainly, what do our matches, what do our performances look like? What's the best way to break those down? What's an efficient way to do that, where well, that's not taking me three days uh, post-performance, but probably a more efficient way that we can we can tag uh, those moments in time. And build a database around it and there was, a, there was a couple of pieces of software floating around the universe at the time and you couldn't get access to them and so in order for me to get access to them I really had to figure out a way to create a, a business that, that that could open up doors um, for, for that software to come into the American landscape and uh, sporting landscape and so that's what I effectively did it was really just basically the the motivation was was selfish so that I could become a better head coach and then so we were using sports code and teaching others how to use it and then helping them with their workflows about how they were doing their analysis. And suddenly I was in the best offices of, you know, the best flow sports in, in, in the college game in the United States, whether that was basketball, field hockey, ice hockey, lacrosse, soccer, rugby, um, you name it. And I'm suddenly getting this experience coming in to help them with their analytics and how they use these tools. But then what I was really able to see in those environments is what their workflows were like, how did those coaches manage the staff. How did they set up uh, environments where the players could be more successful? So it was a really, really good tool for me to continue to grow as a, as a coach. So
1: 2014 comes along, and it looks like you either sold or, or left the business to go back to, to USA Rugby in a, in a developmental role, um, not as a coach or potentially even still coaching. But what was uh, the decision behind that to, to get – I wouldn't say get out of entrepreneurship, but kind of go back to, to your roots from a from a rugby standpoint?
0: Yeah, so I was coaching the national men's sevens team 2012-2013, right when we started the quad, quad to build up to the Rio Olympics. So I was uh, coaching at Dartmouth about halfway through that 2012 season. Uh, the other, the head coach at the time left. We just started the residency program uh, at the USOC. So I was asked to kind of come in and Move that, move that along, the residency program now that we had a full-time environment, be the head coach, take the team into the 2013 uh, World Cup, and build up into, into Rio. Well, my wife was um, going through uh, med school at the time, and you know, it was, was you know, we both agreed we'll, we'll do this for a year, year and a half effectively. That's 11 months on the road. But I really wanted to have a family. That was the top priority for me. And so I, I had the experience of, of coaching the national team, and we put systems in place at that time. That still really are impacting in a positive way that, that program. Uh, so kind of, I felt like I had done my part. Now it's somebody else's turn to come in to really, really take them, take them forward. And, and that's what we've seen. And uh, so I left USA rugby, we left as a national team head coach. We went, I went home um, and kind of reset to kind of rebuild the entrepreneurial side of my life. And it was, I was really excited about that and continue to help with uh, the, the Dartmouth team. And then uh, USA rugby asked me to come back to help out with some of those systems we had implemented. Uh, That perhaps just needed a bit more care and so I was able to do that remotely uh, for a while uh, where we live here in New England and then um, we were able to have some successes and and then build from there and and bring in additional resources and really build a performance department that we didn't really have at USA Rugby you know we had a lot of disconnect a lot of different teams and figuring out ways to resource better our, our men's 15s national team our women's programs you know, what are the development pathways to that? And then we had some successes, some, some, some areas that we, you know, uh, we, we continue to learn from at, at the National Governing Body level and really kind of continuing to drive the sport into, into the new century. And that was my job. And so I was able to do that for that four years as, as general manager.
1: No, I love it. I think, it, you know, honestly, for me, the first time I was really exposed – to to rugby was at one point when i saw i think it was carlin isles right running down the sideline and just absolutely burning everyone i know Car- carlin is one of the people that you were kind of introduced and introduced to rugby sevens talk me through as someone who was a hundred meter sprinter how you found him how he became a, a you know i wouldn't say an international rugby star but someone who popped up on bleacher report house of highlights anytime he touches the ball it's it's something that you know goes mainstream
0: yeah, I mean, Carlin's obviously an enormous talent, uh, but he's just a great human. And, and what I mean by that is he's so willing to work every day and grind. And, um, you know, he's faced a lot of adversity in his life. And um, he's he's met that challenge very, very well. Carlin actually found us. Carlin was, uh, you know, preparing for the 2012 Olympic qualifiers. And, they, you know, one night and he's searching through YouTube clips and he comes across, um, I, think it was, I think it was Miles at the time, Miles Craigwell, who had played uh, football at Brown and then picked up rugby. And Miles was now on our national team and doing some great things and another great human. And um, he's like, wait a minute, I, th- I think I can, I can play this, this rugby game. And, um, you know, he reached out to our CEO at the time, Nigel Melville, and this, this was kind of the workflow. People would reach out to USA Rugby And then it was my job to follow up and you get thousands of those a year, but then just kind of really find the ones that you could, you could help get into the right environment and the right situation. So I had a really good conversation with Carlin. This was June of 2012. And, um, I'd just been finishing with Dartmouth. We actually just won the national championship and I get to have this great conversation, uh, with this young man who at the time was, was training in Austin, Texas. And, uh, And I said, Carlin, listen, we've got an opportunity for you to to head up to Aspen um, for a month and see if you can learn rugby. You're going to be at altitude, which could be a challenge. Um, You've never played the game before. You're going to be around a lot of players who have. That can be a really good thing or that can be a really bad thing. There's some good coaching around there. And our manager at the time, our team manager, Andy Katoa, uh, who's fantastic, just really helped facilitate that. So let's get Carlin up there, um, get him in in an environment where he can learn and just really focus on rugby for a bit. Carlin did that, I took him on a tour to Canada, a development tour to Canada, the end of June, early July, uh, second week of July, and by the end of July, he was on contract, we contracted him at the Olympic Training Center, full year contract, and he's in, you know, international tournaments that fall to start the World Series, and, uh, you know, Carlin just has continued to get better and better in the sport. So, kind of our job as, as coaches at the time, we're just make sure we're putting these uh, these athletes in safe positions to be successful on the field. or rugby, you know, and Carlin had played football a bit, and he had obviously been very linear with track. Rugby, everything is a contest. There's a decision around everything. So, you know, football, you know, for eight seconds, it's kind of mapped out for the most part, unless you're doing some, some things like in the spread, and there's some decision-making for some positions. Well, everything is that way in rugby for every position. And when there's a tackle played as an end, uh, it's just now a contest for possession and the tackle. So the rules of the game right at that moment are around the tackle and you have to make very quick decisions based on the pictures you see about what you can and can't do and how you access the ball and may not access the ball and how you deleverage other people. So you're having to make all these micro decisions every you know, four to five seconds, which which can be a challenge for a lot of really, really high quality physical athletes who come into the game and don't quite have the experience of making those decisions. And That really dictates whether a player is going to be really successful or not is, is how quickly they can get up to speed on the cognitive side of that. And Carlin, uh, you know, he learned that very, very quickly. And obviously, he's, he's an international superstar and, and, and seven aside rugby now.
1: Yeah, and, and electric anytime he touches the ball. I know it's, it's, it's super exciting yeah. to see. And, you know, almost kind of going back to the startup route, right, you were at USA Rugby for another almost five years, you get the call to basically come back and, and start doing stuff with uh, Major League Rugby and, take over and, and launch the free jacks for you. Why at that time did you feel like rugby was at a place professionally or in the U S at least where y- you thought that being a part of what would be, you know, the major league in the U S was, was the right move.
0: Yeah. So, you know, yeah. USA rugby. is a startup, So you have that experience at, at a startup cause it keeps, it's kind of one of those NGVs that's had to be, had to be uh, entrepreneurial in that way, and then you saw different um, groups over time try to kind of kickstart the, the pro game in the United States. Uh, you know, some visions of let's build this, start, let's try to pretend we're the NFL from day one and build it from there. Uh, really, really uh, resource intensive, without necessarily a proven fan base, that can be a challenge. So You got to have really, really deep pockets for a long, long time, um, and then and then everything in between. And on a personal level, I really, you know, had a great experience, you know, working the global game and, and helping uh, USA Rugby move forward on the, on the national team level and having a lot of, a lot of good successes on the field uh, in the international game. But for me to be able to burn it hot in one spot where we could really actually truly share this game with more people, not just people who can come and play the game, come and ref the game, come and coach the game, come and administer the game, but people can actually just watch the game. It's such a beautiful game to watch. It's got this amazing duality between uh, being very physical um, but also having finesse. You know, a lot of give and goes but also kicking. You know, it's got this, this, this amazing duality to the sport and um, it's enormously empowering, right? It's, everybody gets to make decisions with the ball, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier about decision-making and, and just how empowering that can be. Um, Can be for people. So the Major League model, Major League Rugby model, uh, what was savvy about how uh, they originally set it up was let's 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 start small, right? We don't need to be the NFL today. Make sure we're we're building with a a good growth strategy where we're keeping cost in control, you know, relative to revenue. Let's make sure we don't alienate the current rugby fan base. You know, let's make sure that. the, the, the current rugby fan base is really excited about it. Okay, that's great. Let's make sure we're making it attractive for everybody else who's ever been exposed to rugby in some capacity. And a lot of people in the United States have been exposed to rugby, whether that was on college campuses, whether that was they, you know, their expats, um, whether they saw it at a World Cup on a business meeting, whatever the case may be, whether it was through Olympics, you know, seeing Carlin run. Let's make sure it's accessible there, um, and then let's let's grow this over time. Uh, so that we're here in 100 years, right? And let's learn all the lessons we possibly can from the experience that the MLS had in the 90s and early 2000s and what the NFL had for 30 years, you know, from the 1920s to the 1950s. Let's let's take all that we possibly can from the successes and failures of a lot of the other leagues and let's package that together to make sure that we're in a position to, to move this forward for the long term. And that was what was attractive about it.
1: Sorry, I was I was muted. How has the transition been uh, for you, and 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 this? I mean, obviously, you're a year, almost two years, really, now into it. Come October, um, what was it? What's it been like launching the team, getting it up to speed? Um, you know, kind of yeah. just putting all of the pieces together that you've done over the last you know 14, 15 years prior.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. You know, coming into it, I think the MLR was probably very rugby-centric and probably what we've learned and, you know, what I've learned over the last two years is that the rugby is fantastic. We've got a really good product on the field. We don't need to worry about that too much. What we need to do a really, really good job as job of is continuing to make sure we get out of our own echo chamber, which we're doing successfully, where we're able to share the game with others who may not have played the game themselves or don't have children necessarily right now playing the game, although we're seeing a lot of growth at the youth level. We're probably, we having to build communities around just the awesomeness of our festival events. Like, it's, it's just a rare sport where you can go and, you know, you and I are sitting down at the game together and you're wearing a different jersey than me and if good rugby happens, we cheer it on and we may buy each other a beer. Like, it's just, it's a, it's a really cool festival experience and anybody who's experienced that in rugby understands wow this is actually sport the way it should be you know like people aren't getting in fist fights <laughs> like you, you know it, it's it's safe for your kids and it's and it's safe to bring your friends to and that's really the great experience about it and so what, we, what we're learning is just how can we make sure we we share that um with a wider audience and that's really the last year where we've where we've been doing a much much better job of and i think we're seeing a lot of
1: exponential growth because of that Obviously, rugby is super popular international. Like, what, is it, what, is it, what does it have to happen in the U.S. to get rugby, not to the same level, but in the, in the discussion, right? What is it that you guys are focused on? I know you said getting outside of your echo chamber, but what does that look like, right? You guys... I think there's what one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve teams uh, in MLR. So obviously, formidable league. What what what's that next step for for the league or even just the the Free Jacks yourself?
0: Yeah, so you know, thirteen teams right now, and right and obviously one of our our assets is, is what cities that, that grow in time. Where where is that going to be? There's no question that the big four, well, the big five really now. There is certainly a high level of participatory a volume at the lower ages, right? And and baseball, basketball, ice hockey, football, and and, and soccer as well. So that's probably a key long-term point for us is making sure that we're continuing to share the game. You know, all of the club teams, all of our teams, all of our member teams are doing a really good job, you know, building um, competitions in the Boys and Girls Clubs and the YMCA's uh, in their communities to just share the game, right? And that can be touch rugby, that can be seven-a-side rugby, that can be tens rugby, non-contact, contact, all different age groups. And we're seeing a lot of people be introduced to a sport for the first time and they're like, wow, this is really cool. There's no coach telling me what to do. I get a run. If I don't pass to you, I pass to, I pass to her. We all got to support her. So it's this very cool dynamic and, and kids are suddenly getting exposed to i like, wow, this is awesome. And then parents are saying, wow, this is a safer version than some of our other – contact sports in the United States. So I actually appreciate this. Um, so the, the participation volume piece is important to kind of move into that like big five, right? I think, you know, we're, we're the participants of a hundred, you know, hundreds of thousands that needs to be into the millions to really be kind of in that consideration. Um, but beyond that, we need to be very, very good at just making sure people understand what the entertainment value proposition for this is. And it is an experience you can't have in any of the other sports. It just isn't. It's kind of got the best of what you can do, you know, MLS and soccer and, and, and the community around singing and those pieces, but without the animosity against the other team. You know, it's got, um, it's got the, the, the some of the physicality that you would see in American football and some of the tactics. Uh, And certainly the history of tradition that we would have beyond um, some of our some of our sports. And then it's got kind of the global nature that it was well beyond even baseball and basketball, you know, I I guess probably, probably similar to basketball in that regard. So it's got all these different pieces that combine some of the greatness of other sports. And it's just a really, really fun two hours. (laughs) It's awesome. So if we can bottle that up and share it with you for 30 seconds a day and, you know, an hour on the weekend, we're going to be in a very, very successful position because it's just, it's, some what it is now our job is to make sure we're, we're doing a better job sharing that
1: yeah i mean some of the the most fun things uh, i've ever watched or even been to has been rugby events right they're just there's really nothing like it you just have to experience especially sevens because it's so fast it's so quick they're in and out the games are the games are like they're over before you can even know it and uh it's just non-stop action the whole time and like you said there's really I, I remember I was at uh, a tournament in, in Las Vegas and like there's people who are technically cheering on one side who are also cheering on the side of someone else who's sitting next to them. And yeah. like you said, they're buying beers. You just, I've just never seen anything like that at a sporting event, right? You know, especially in an, an American sporting event, mostly it's team versus team not, they just like, I feel like people just love the sport of rugby. It doesn't matter really who's playing. Obviously they have their preferred team, but they just love the sport of rugby. Exactly,
0: and you know, it's like it's a game where okay, there's a scrum. I see how the set piece. I see how that works. That's really cool. It's like this magical eight seconds of people pushing against each other. It's its own little contest. It's this amazing little battle. But then play continues, and it goes. The ball goes from the scrum, and suddenly three passes later, it's on the other side of the field. You got a really fast person running onto it, and there may be a kick and chip, and he's passing to somebody else. Oh, and then he dodges a couple people. Then there's a tackle. There's a contest of the tackle now. We're out in the contest, the ball moves through other hands, and it's another chip kick, and there's a, there's a try, which is, which is a score. Or he, he runs into touch. And you know what? Then you have a 5, 10-second, 15-second break sometimes to catch your breath, talk to the person next to you, check your phone, and then it's 30 seconds more of this awesomeness. Like it's just, and that's the really cool part. And sometimes that lasts for four minutes, and sometimes that awesomeness lasts for 10 seconds. And it's, so it's, it's nice nice rhythm, this nice flow to it. Uh, which is pretty cool. And oh, by the way, it's it's a big ball that you can see on TV. There's kicking. Oh, I understand that. Uh, there's passing. Oh, I get that. I get, I get give and goes. I understand that. I understand tackling. Okay, cool. Now you're going to put all those together and it's like, basketball on a 70 meter by 100 meter pitch where you can tackle each other (laughs) come on (laughs) how cool is that
1: yeah it combines a little bit of like you said it combines a little bit of everything and obviously you guys launch in, in 2018 you're up to 13 teams the pandemic has hurt the broader sports industry there's no denying that Uh, For Major League Rugby, you know, how has it impacted your guys' business? What are you guys kind of planning to? What's the outlook coming out of of this one? Hopefully we can return to having fans in the stands because I'm assuming that's a major part of your guys' revenue model given that the media rights probably aren't there or as, you know, lucrative as other sports. But, you know, is there anything you guys have changed? Has it altered your approach? You know, obviously rugby, you can't really, there's not a whole lot of social distancing in rugby, um, especially given the tackling and and the nature of that. But uh, you know, how do you guys rebound from this and and kind of what's next?
0: So yeah, you're exactly right. We are a live events, live event company, right? That's where we're at. That's currently what we do really, really a good job of. We sell tickets, we have really good food and beverage, we got dancing, we got music, we got all sorts of different little mini festival things that go into what makes up a, a rugby match day for us. And that's kinda, that is the monetizable thing, both from a you know, pay, to, pay to be there and have that experience, but also uh, sponsorship, and then you just leave and you're like, that's amazing, I want more of that. So that, that is really important to us uh, in terms of the, the, the current business, but also kind of growing and sharing and, and garnering more fans over time. Um, obviously we had to cancel the season, uh, you know, kind of we were midway through. We were two days with the Pre-Jacks, two days away from a sellout crowd for our first inaugural home match on St. Patty's weekend, you know, in the Boston area. How cool is that? Okay, we have to cancel. All the costs are in the door, but the revenue isn't because we've got to play out still that whole season of revenue generation. That doesn't happen. So the local level that obviously hurt and, and we manage the business appropriately based on that. Uh, at the top level, at our league level, we're, we're a single entity. We were able to say okay well let's make sure we we do right here we take care of our players okay we did that um there's there's certainly some cost savings and not having to travel and everything else for a, yeah. for a whole a season be we able to do that We're in a pretty healthy cash position at the league level and now we have an entire year runway with a new commissioner who's got a new staff behind him george Kilbrew has come in as he was the chief revenue officer of the of the mavs Dallas mavericks for 20 years you know cubans right hand person and he's really driving a really now robust um, league office, um, you know, savvy in terms of, of, of our partnerships and just doing the regular blocking and tackling of what a good league needs to do, and they're doing a really nice job. So they have this really, really great lo- runway heading into 2021. There's no question right now we have 10 different plans about what 2021 looks like, anywhere from full-capacity stadiums you know, starting in, in the late winter to delaying that a couple months to um, bubble options, right? We're looking at all of those possible options um, and seeing what is going to be the best based on what we anticipate to probably happen vis-a-vis when we can get back together with with fans in, in, a, in a large capacity and everything else. But we're, we're, we're prepared for that long-term. Um, you know, we're also, you know, we're looking out to, to 2022, if we'd be, if we have to go bubble and then we're not actually live events again until 2022, what does that model look like? We spent a lot of time hashing that out just so we're in a successful position to keep driving fans. And so what we've done, you know, we've, we've, we've produced, you know, 25 hours of, of, of live podcast, rated podcasts over the last month and a half. We've brought in, you know, 600 new coaches uh, virtually, you know, for free through a, a coaching academy. Uh, we've brought in another 1,000 um, uh, kids playing the game virtually. Uh, and now we've, we've been able to have um, some safe distancing clinics uh, over the last month. So we've been able to do all those pieces uh, as we kind of hammer out kind of what exactly 2021 looks like, so kind of blessing in the skies, we were able to reinvent in some ways who we are uh, off the field, and that's actually going to help us in the future having a more robust uh, digital
1: uh, platform. Yeah, no, 100%. Started in 18 with seven, you guys are up to 13, so almost doubling the size of your league. Do you see expansion in the future? Is there an appetite for that? Have you heard others who are looking in other cities who are who are looking to add an MLR team to to their you know rotation of five, professional sports teams?
0: Yeah, five c- cities that are kind of actively five groups in five different cities actively trying to get in. One is paid for a due diligence period, um, and that was published that was Hawaii. So in that, that process, we'd obviously be the first. Know, big professional sport, to, to have a team in Hawaii makes a lot of sense for us, uh, kind of not only for our sport and um, uh, the demographics of Hawaii, but also, you know, just the, the connection there in the South Pacific, uh, you know, Australia, Fiji, uh, Japan, uh, it, 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 and for us, you know, having a game there at noon, seven o'clock here, there's ways that it can work where our media dollars aren't so concerned about, about those hours right now, so that actually can be really, uh, really successful for us. We'll see if that happens. Uh, but there are certainly other cities that are groups in other cities that are pushing to get in. There's some obvious cities that would be really good to add um, from a rugby perspective that have you know, had a long history of rugby and we're a North American league, so you can obviously the Vancouver's and San Francisco's and Chicago's of the world all would be uh, great fits, but you know, also what you see in, in, in modern sport, there's a lot of those other cities, you know, the Nashvilles of the world, that have shown that they can provide a uh, Louisville's of the world really, really robust quality fan experience as well in in high numbers so we'll see but there is there is high demand which is really good to see and that's really increasing despite the
1: pandemic would you have ever envisioned graduating from dartmouth in 2000 that you would be one of the people helping make rugby mainstream in the u.s you know 18 years later (laughs) no not at all
0: But uh, it's, it's, been, it's been a really fun journey so far, and uh, I certainly am learning a lot every day and, uh, and it, enjoying it so much. I think that's just a great thing about our sport and, and entrepreneurship in general. It's just, it's just really fun, right? You get gotta, you to gotta build new systems, and um, hopefully you do them right so they work. But if not, you get to iterate again. That's, uh, that's been the really fun part. And you get to hang around with, with great people. That's, uh, that's key to any good business, but certainly what I've learned through time my partner here with, with the free jacks Eric Anderson, you know, he's, he's, he's been successful in his own way in a lot of, in a lot of us uh, businesses, biotech primarily. And um, what I love about him every day is I'm showing up at the office and he's still grinding, right? And he doesn't have to. And um, I just love that energy and, and finding that. And I think you find that certainly in rugby. I mean, you do in a lot of other things. That's been, that's been really rewarding for me is to, is to, to, to be associated and, and, and live um, through these experiences with others like that.
1: Speaking of entrepreneurship, to finish this off, what's been the the biggest lesson that maybe you took from the the 15 years prior, so the 18 years prior, so do you sitting up top, you know, a major league rugby team helping run it and not only run it, but run it through its inaugural, inaugural season, run it through now what's a pandemic, you know, what's that one kind of entrepreneurship lesson that stuck with you that um, has stood out and helped you kind of guide yourself through all of this? Yeah, if
0: you ask me this two hours from now, it'll be a different answer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> totally true. Totally true. What, uh, you know, something that I learned
0: early on as a coach, when I was two years out from when I, when I was coaching at Darwin, my first year as head coached players I'd actually played with. So they were sophomores when I was a senior, and now they were seniors, and I was their head coach, right? And that has a tendency to create power dynamics um, that are different than, you know, had been when I was peer-to-peer. And so I had to learn pretty early on that um, you know, the, the best of coaches, I think, probably create systems, if not you know gardens where, where the where players can really flourish and you figure out kind of how much sunlight's really helping and water. But overall, you're letting them grow and you're letting them figure it out. And um, that, that probably seems to be a theme that pops up every once in a while. Like, you know, no matter how, how, many, how good the system is, you build, and you may build things that people really need. But unless they really want it and have a say, it's probably not going to happen. And we and I saw that again. USA Rugby was also an entrepreneurial uh, adventure. Uh, we, um, you know, a lot of things that we we thought with really really good data, they were actually really really good systems, but they didn't really succeed long term because the very people who benefit from those systems didn't necessarily have a say. And I think that's just a, that's a really important piece. And I always thought that oh, of course I I, I I share and and. Everybody has a say in everything, but sometimes I, I, I miss that. And um, I think that's just a really good entrepreneurial lesson I see popping up all throughout coaching teams, uh, uh, startups, and everything else. It's just there's got to be buy-in, right? And it's, it's got to be real, and um, people have to understand I don't know how they're going to benefit, but they've got to see it and they've got to have a say whether that's, whether that's uh, the way to do it or not. And that's, a, that's been an important lesson, it continues to be an important lesson.
1: Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed it please remember to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. If you do, make sure to take a screenshot of the rating slash review and share it on social media to get some front office sports swag. We'll see you next time.